But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought, and he brought it, and he brought it up and grew it up with him with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into the arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite and the sword and have given his wife to your and has given his wife to your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord: Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I, will t and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, for I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also, also has put your sin Put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of my deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And then the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, he spoke to him. we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, 
washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept for and fasted and wept for I said, this morning. There we go. Good morning, everyone. The slimy and spotless king. You know, slimy is an interesting word, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you felt slimy? Okay. I mean, for most of us, there are probably a lot of stories of when we were kids running around, getting covered in mud and twigs and dirt and other kinds of things. Um, I remember, actually, there's, there's a video of me as a three-year-old child in a white shirt playing around in a muddy bird bath. It's become kind of a, a legend in my family, the bird bath video. And of course, I had to share with my brother, get him all messy. Maybe the last time that you felt slimy was more recently because there was some tragic accident or some freak thing that happened and you just happened to get covered with some gunk. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a father of two young kids. I could talk about various times where my kids have spit up on me or peed on me or other things, but the worst one was actually not when they were born. The worst one was maybe just a few weeks after my wife and I had been married, and we were out walking around in our neighborhood, enjoying the day, enjoying the walk, talking together, and then all of a sudden, I just felt something hit my arm. And it was hot, it was sticky, it was green. And it was just, it shocked me, it surprised me. I didn't know what was going on. And I looked down at it, and then I looked up in the tree, and I realized that was the particular moment where a bird decided to use me as its bathroom. Yeah, that was, that was the worst. But you know, as unpleasant as it is to be covered with mud or dirt or bird poop or other kinds of slimy things, the good news is that in the end, you can just go home, get a shower, and just washes right off, and then you move on with your life. But the word slimy is an interesting word in the English language. It has a second meaning. It has a more figurative, metaphorical meaning, right? This kind of slimy is a synonym for sleazy or conniving or vile or underhanded, or as I I love how this one dictionary I found puts it, friendly in a false 
calculating way. Man, doesn't that sound like last week? This is the kind of slimy that we talk about when we talk about a slimy politician or a slimy lawyer or a slimy used car dealership, right? It's what we expect out of people like that. It's not what we ever expect out of somebody in a church. And it hurts a lot more than we admit when we hear news of another pastor or another elder or another church worker who was caught being slimy. And that's what made last week's text so difficult to read, isn't it? Because we saw David at his absolute slimiest. After David sent out his soldiers on, you know, an expedition of war, and he put their lives at risk so that he could lounge around at home, he noticed a woman who was very beautiful, but she was not available. And David, who had never, ever, never, ever reached out to grasp for anything. He didn't grasp for the throne. He didn't grasp for the kingdom. He didn't grasp for his crown. David, it says, he took her. He took her and he slept with her. Even though he had just found out from his servants that she was another man's wife. Even though, specifically, he had just found out from his servants that she was the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers. Didn't matter. And you know, if that wasn't bad enough, David decided to orchestrate an elaborate cover-up, right? Try to ease over all of it. And when that cover-up didn't work, he, he premeditated and he plotted out Uriah's murder. It was no manslaughter that got Uriah killed. It wasn't any accident. It was an intentional thing. David was in court, it wouldn't stand a chance. It was murder, plain and simple. And then, I don't know if you caught this, but how did David get Uriah killed? He sent a letter. How? He gave the letter saying, kill Uriah, rolled it up, sealed it, and handed it to Uriah. So Uriah walks around with the very letter saying, I'm going to die. And David did that because he knew Uriah is such a stand-up guy that he is not going to get curious on the way and open this up and unroll it and read his death sentence. Man, that's low. And you know what? David's cover-up does work. Uriah's killed, but he's not the only one. There's other innocent lives involved, and they get sacrificed away so that this secret can stay safe. And, you know, to wrap it up, David has the gall to just shrug it all off. Like, well, you know what? This is what happens in war. People die. Get used to it. As if it was just some accident beyond his control and not something that he purposely orchestrated. But the worst part of last week's story, the worst part is not that David was laying around lazily at home. It's not that he took... Bathsheba and slept with her while he was still married, I should admit, right? Because he had other wives. It's not that he orchestrated a cover-up. It's not that he was personally responsible for the deaths of Uriah and other soldiers. No, the worst part is that at the end of the text, David has no remorse, no regret, doesn't care. And this is David, right? 
This is the David that you and I learned about in Sunday school. This is the guy who's called the man after God's own heart. This is David, the man who when Samuel was meeting with Saul and he was delivering the news that Saul was not going to be king anymore, Samuel turned, he walked away, and he said this, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. David is better than Saul. But not off of last week. David, the hero who slayed Goliath, who relied on the strength of God and strengthened himself in the Lord and sought the Lord on numerous occasions when he was being chased and hunted in the wilderness, that guy is now David, the slimy murderer who thinks he's gotten away with it. But not for long. Chapter 11 ends with these haunting words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David fooled everyone, but he didn't fool God. You know, when when Saul rejected the word of the Lord and he, he became corrupt and sleazy and slimy, God sent the prophet Samuel to personally deliver the news that Saul was going to be not king anymore. And so in much the same way, David... Uh, God sends a prophet's call out David's sin. And so here we are in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or her to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as The Lord lives. This man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Can you even begin to think about how terrifying that assignment was for David? I mean, if you think about it functionally, it's the same thing as when God took Moses and said, you're going to go to this very rich king named Pharaoh who is in charge of this empire, and you are going to speak truth to him. And the thing is, you know, at various points throughout his life, David had refused to kill Saul, even when he had the chance. He'd refused to harm him or do any evil to him because he said, you know what, Saul is the Lord's anointed. How am I going to touch him? How am I going to do anything bad to him? Right? I can't touch the Lord's anointed. And when various people came and said, hey, I killed Saul, he said, well, then you're going to die. Hey, I killed Saul's relatives. Well, then you're going to die. If Nathan had not been very tactful in this delivery, he could have also ended up on the chopping block. So instead of coming in guns a-blazing, just yelling out, you are the man! Nathan goes for a subtle approach, one that is guaranteed to get through David's hard and calloused heart. 
Just like Jesus did time and time and time and time again, Nathan, I don't know if you realize this, Nathan doesn't just tell a story, he tells David a parable. And the thing about parables is that they represent things. In this parable, there's a rich man. And that rich man has many, 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 many flocks. He's also got many, 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 many herds. And there's a poor man who has nothing but one young, did you get that? One little ewe, one young female sheep. Now, it's good in parables at times to realize what the things represent. The rich man is David, the poor man is Uriah, the animals, it seems, are their wives. And given what Nathan says to David down the line, that, you know, the Lord took, he gave you your master's house, he gave you your master's wives, it would look like the, the sheep are David's own wives, and the herds are Saul's wives who've been added to David. So David's got, David's got enough. And, you know, in this parable, unlike the rich man, the poor man is described as being extremely affectionate with his lamb. He loved that lamb. He used to feed it from the table. He used to hold her in his arms. She was like a daughter to him, it says. And from that, it would seem like Uriah was a really good husband to Bathsheba. He loved her. He was a good man. He didn't deserve to go down the way that he did. But then something else happens in this parable, right? A traveler comes to town. Who do you think that traveler is? That traveler is David's lust, right? David's lust comes to town. And David looks at the situation. He says, hmm, I got all of my wives. I've got all of Saul's wives. Eh, pass. I don't want them. I want the young one down the street. You know, David's outrage in this parable, where he says, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, that's actually a very promising thing. It shows that even though he's been very slimy and he's been very evil and he's done all of this, there's still a flicker of God's justice deep down in his heart. And with all that righteous, godly conviction of the same boy who faced down a giant and said, words of truth to him, David passes judgment on himself. He says, this man deserves to die. And that is exactly what deserves to happen to David. He deserves to die. But God has some things to say to David first. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you as much more. I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I, I, I will take your wives 
before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who's born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So God declares three consequences of David's sin to David. There's three consequences. First of all, since David took another man's wife, God says, I'm going to take your wives away. Actually, that is something that you see further on in 2 Samuel, is that from David's own house, an enemy will rise and take his own wives away. Since David, okay, so that's, that's consequence one. Consequence two, since David killed off Uriah's house with the sword, his own house is going to be plagued by the sword. And consequence three, even though David has utterly scorned the Lord, even though he has despised the word of the Lord, the, the text says, even though his heart has been nothing but evil towards God, God is unwilling to break his promise to David. He's unwilling to throw David in the trash. And God has purposed and decided that he is going to redeem the situation, but somebody deserves to die. And his child is going to bear that punishment. These are steep consequences that God delivers to David. That the consequences of a slimy, sinful heart. And you know, David says, I have sinned, and a lot of commentators see that as a great moment of repentance, but, you know, if you go back in the text to 1 Samuel 15, that's exactly what Saul said when he was rejected from being king. And you know, Saul's confession, I have sinned against the Lord, it turned out to just be him pivoting to justify himself and try to shift blame away from himself and try to not take responsibility for his actions and try to get out of punishment and try to hold on to his power. And, you know, maybe that's why Nathan doesn't even try to stick around and see the grisly end. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead. For They said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went down to his own house. And when they asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then the servant said to him, What's this thing that you've done? You, you fasted and wept for the child when he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. 
He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Anytime we read from the word of God, there's a danger of going too quickly. Skimming too fast, reading too fast, missing out on some key things. And if you do that in this passage, you're going to end up really depressed. Because this section looks really pathetic, doesn't it? God's already told David what's going to happen. Why is he trying to grasp at it? Why is he trying to change God's mind? Why is he praying his guts out for an entire week and fasting for an entire week just to give up in the end? Say, oh well. But is that what's going on in our text? And if that was what was going on in the text, what does that say about God? God said to him through the prophet Nathan, I put away your sin. I put it away. So why does this child have to die? I mean, do we believe in a vindictive God like that? Do we believe in a God who says, I've poured out all my wrath on my son? Well, not all of it. I kept a little bit for those days when you're being bad. Are we, are we like closeted Roman Catholics who say, well, yeah, you ask for forgiveness, but you also got to do penance. You got to feel a little bit of the pain that you caused, right? Are we like those people who say, you know, I, I forgive you, but not fully, because you need to hurt a little bit before you're really forgiven. Is that what's going on in this text? Or is there something deeper and praise be to God, there is something deeper going on in this text. David's servants couldn't see it. They saw him laying on the ground. They saw him fasting. They saw him crying out. They saw him weeping. And they didn't get it. They thought God was nowhere to be found. They thought that God was giving David the silent treatment, that he was ignoring him, that he was adamantly patently rejecting him. But although this passage seems like David is just praying and fasting, there's something else going on under the surface. Just as David had done on so many other times, in so many other occasions when he sought the Lord, David was not just praying, he was psalming. He was writing a psalm. If you have your pew Bibles, would you please turn with me to page 560. For Psalm 51, if you don't have a pew Bible. Psalm 51, it's on the pew Bible, it's page 560. The title, Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God. It's the very first part says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is, this is David's heart at this moment in time. Do you realize that? Sometimes in the narrative text of First and Second Samuel, we don't get a window into what David was feeling or what David was thinking or what David was believing or how he was acting. We just see the external. But in the Psalms, we get a window into what was going on in his heart. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me 
thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would have given it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, we don't have the time this morning to dive deeply in Psalm 51, but I, I want to point out a few things. Nowhere in there do you hear, God save my child, God save my child, God save my child. David was fasting for seven days. Day one was probably, God save my child, God save my child, God save my child, God save my child. And you know what's interesting is all throughout our, our sermon series so far, David is called out to God, and almost immediately, God is answered back, right? David sought the Lord, the Lord answered David. Boom, boom. Quick, instant, instantaneous, immediate. And this time, David gets on the ground, he's fasting, he's praying, he prays out to God, save my child. And the answer, Nothing. Silence. And you could see that as God being petty. Or you could see it as God doing a deeper work. Because over the course of that week, David's prayer transforms from God save my child, God save my child, God save my child, to this have mercy on me, wash me from my sin, purge me with hyssop, create in me a clean heart, make me praise you. Let these bones that you've broken. Rejoice. David had spent seven days on the ground without any word from the Lord, and at the end, reflecting on why he did what he did, the best explanation he can find is this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He realized in that moment that this slimy situation he found himself in, it was not something that was out there. It wasn't Bathsheba's fault. It wasn't his circumstances' fault. It was something that came out of his own heart. And you know what? He realized there what Jesus said. 
Jesus said this, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. From the heart, they come from the heart. David's sin had come out of his own heart. And now, sitting there weeping on the ground and pleading for his son's life, he saw his sin for how absolutely disgusting it actually was. What about you? I started this, uh, this sermon off by asking, when was the last time you felt slimy? When was the last time you felt slimy like this? When was the last time you were this serious about your own sin? Some of you today sitting in here in these, in these seats, you feel dissociated from David's experience because you think that you're clean and you think that you're pure and you think that you're good. And you might think you don't need Jesus as much today as you probably did a few years ago or maybe not at all. It gives me no joy to say I have members of my extended family, so not my wife and kids, but of my extended family who've said to me, I'm not a sinner. I just have some bad habits from time to time that I need to work on. If that's your attitude, this is what Jesus, your loving king, your loving savior, this is what he has to say. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And writing to a church full of saints, this is, what, this is what Paul has to say. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who, promote, who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the part you and I remember as the Bible memory verse, but then we forget the next part. And such were some of you. Paul's looking at a church, a church that's supposed to be full of holy people, and he says, you used to be thieves. You used to be idolaters. You used to be adulterers. Such were some of you. There are some people sitting here in this church today, you are very well-dressed addicts. And addicted to what? Well, you might be like me, right? Fletch said last week that he doesn't trust a man who says to him that he's never struggled with porn. Well, guess what? I am a porn addict. Now, I should, I should clarify quick before you jump to scary conclusions. I don't mean that in the sense that I've actively watched porn on a daily basis in a while. But I, you know what? I did. Right? From basically the ages of 14 to 19, it was my daily drug when I got home from school. And you know, you could just see this as, oh, Ben, that was a bad thing that you did. And now you stopped doing that bad thing. And therefore, you're not such a bad person anymore. But you would totally ignore the part that no one ever talks about with this. The thing that having a porn addiction does to you is it, it makes you start to become slimy, right? To keep it up, I had to start lying in my parents' faces 
I had to start sneaking around. I had to start covering my tracks. And, you know, the first time I did that, I was terrified. And then second, third, fourth, 25th time, it just became easy for lies to just roll off my tongue. And I started turning into a person that I don't want to be. How many of you, you've lived for years with a certain habitual sin and it's just become normal and you've justified it away and you've said, you know what, it's fine. Well, I I got to that point where I was just fine with it. And then I went off to college and I met a group of Christians who told me about the love of Jesus and started to tug at my heart and started to do things to me and say, you know what, Am am I saved? And I remember there was one day in my first year of college where my roommate was gone for the weekend and so I was alone in my dorm room and I was watching porn and I heard something going by outside. There was a group of people. That group of people was my small group out on a prayer walk. And, I, and in that moment, I just felt totally convicted at how... You know, I had, I had said, I can't make the prayer walk today. I'm feeling sick. And my lies had finally caught up to me. And I realized it's not just about the bad thing I do. It's about the bad person I'm becoming. See, sin is never just about bad habits we do. It's about our character. It's about who we become. It's about who David had become. And the truth is, you're in this boat with me whether you're addicted to porn or you're greedy or you're a reviler who cuts people down with their words after you get out of the doors of this church and you get in the car with your family and you turn and you say, shut it. We all, all of us in this room should look at each other in orange jumpsuits. Nobody is better off than anyone else. Nobody is better off than David in this situation. David was slimy, you're slimy. David deserved to die, you deserve to die. I'm slimy, I deserve to die. That is where God's holy and righteous law leaves us. But that's not where our text leaves us today. Verse 20. Then David rose. David has just been praying, fasting, weeping on the ground for seven days. No food. And he gets up, and the very first thing that David does is not go to get some food. He arose from the earth, and he washed. And you might say, well, duh, he was covered in dirt. He was laying on the ground. But the Bible doesn't use washed in such a crass way all the time, right? The, the Bible uses the language of being washed to talk about purification. He was getting ready to go into the house of the Lord. Levitical law associated various washings with purification. David had blood on his hands. He had Uriah's blood on his hands. He needed to wash. He had prayed here in Psalm 51, God, wash my heart. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. He prayed for God to wash him, and now here, he does He gets to be washed. He gets to be clean. And look at what comes immediately after that, right? David anointed himself. You don't get the wordplay, perhaps, but David's the Lord's anointed. The the word Christ, the word Messiah, is literally just translations of the English word anointed. 
David was not the Lord's anointed when he slept with Bathsheba. He was not the Lord's anointed when he did all these horrible things. But he re-anoints himself. He takes up that washed and consecrated covenant identity. And now that David has been washed and has been anointed, he's free to go back into the house of the Lord and worship. Don't you get it? Psalm 51, this text, this sequence of events. David started off today. He started off last chapter completely slimy, completely filthy. And out of his prayer, God washed me thoroughly. God did. He washed him, and David is now squeaky clean. His prayer throughout Psalm 51 has been answered. God has washed him from his sin. God has purged him with hyssop. God has made him whiter than snow. He has created a new heart in him, and he has restored to him the joy of his salvation. He has made these bones that were broken rejoice. Friends, this is not just God's promise to David. This is God's promise to us, too. Listen to what he promises us here in Ezekiel 36. This is what God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what he promises in Hebrews 10. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6, right? Some of you used to be adulterers. Some of you used to be liars. Some of you used to be thieves. Some of you used to be people who practiced homosexuality. And you know, Biblical Greek didn't necessarily have commas to make lists. Like I'm going to the store by apples, comma, oranges, cap, comma, strawberries. So they repeat conjunctions. Apples and bananas and strawberries. This is the actual sequence of conjunctions here. And such were some of you. Some of you used to be this, but you were washed. Some of you used to be this stuff, but you were sanctified. Emmanuel Church, some of you used to be this, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, what God promises that he's going to do when he says, I promise that I will wash you and I will clean you, he actually does it, and you are clean. And now in our text, David is clean, and our text is able to say this, he comforted his wife, Bathsheba. It names her again, and it says that she's now his wife. Verse 24, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, because of the Lord. 
at the end of this terrible ordeal, now that David's heart has been washed thoroughly by the blood of the Lamb, David and God are finally able to move on, to move past everything that happened. And David's son Solomon, you know, his, he bears the title Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord, the same title that Jesus will have, the beloved son with whom God is well pleased. Moving on, some of you feel like you can't move on. Maybe as I've been preaching here today, maybe before church, maybe throughout the past few months, you've felt stuck in your own muck, stuck in your own slime of your sinfulness. And even though you've heard the words that you've been forgiven and that Jesus has washed you, your, your subjective experience of that is lacking. If you are having trouble believing today that you're washed, come to Jesus. Listen to these words from the lips of your Savior. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Do you want to be made clean today? Do you want that? Then come to Jesus. Some of you might say, Ben, I, I did. I, I came to Jesus years ago, and I've, I've fallen off the way. Then come to Jesus today. Come back. If you realize today that you want to be clean, and you realize today that you need that same blood of Jesus Christ that I need today, that David needed that anyone else in this church needs. If you want your slimy heart to be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, come to Jesus today. Come to the Lord's table. Come to the table. Come join the sinners around you who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Amen.